Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. I pray that you would lend us understanding as we dig into the priesthood of the old covenant and also look to Jesus, our great high priest. And Lord, as the preacher this morning, I pray that you'd help me be clear for the sake of your people and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's tough in this sermon series to pick up these readings midstream because they're really big swaths of material that you kind of have to read uh, the entirety to understand. Um, But we're now looking today at the priesthood, which goes along with the tabernacle. And I want to begin just with an illustration from my days as an engineer before I was in ministry. I worked um, on a project for the American National Bank in downtown Chicago on the second basement level of the building where this bank had a huge vault. And the project was to convert this vault into office space with uh, little cubicles. And it was weird because there was like, uh, I don't even know how heavy it was, there was a bank door that was like four feet thick, clear glass, you could see all the gears in it, and these big rods of stainless steel that would, when the gears were turned, would push into the frame. It was the biggest change order I ever had from a contractor because they were trying to drill through the walls to bring in the data lines and the vents for air, and they kept hitting steel I-beams that were put vertically in the concrete. The point being, you're not supposed to get into a vault. And that big door was, was so massive, they just left it there and opened it and then built the floor around it so it could never be closed. But, you know, those doors in banks, I don't know if they actually ever are really closed because the steel cables and, like, the little screen is enough, but it's a visual. And what it says is, don't you dare try breaking into our bank. And the thing about vaults like that is people know I'm not supposed to be in there, but I need, or at least I want, what is in there. And in that sense, it's somewhat similar to the tabernacle. I need what's in there, and I want what's in there, but I'm not supposed to be in there. As we look at this um, series through Exodus, we're recognizing the tension of a holy God who wants to dwell in the midst of people that are sinful. And right there is the problem. And so on Mount uh, Sinai, God's fire and smoke and holiness was on the top of the mountain, And the people couldn't come up onto the mountain. The priests could come partially up, and and the elders rather, and then Moses could go up into God's presence. And the tabernacle was built to model that, except where Mount Sinai couldn't move, the tabernacle could move with them as they wandered with the Lord in the desert. So I want to go back to the picture we had last week when Lenny preached on the tabernacle. If you'll put that up here, this is an artist's rendition of what was inside the tabernacle, and then the temple in Israel, which was later built, was also modeled after this kind of a structure. And last week, Lenny pointed out that it was all wrapped in gold in there, and on the left was a lampstand that was the presence of God shining the light. On the right was the table of the bread of presence, and then in the, he didn't mention it, but the smoke going up off that table in the back, that's actually the altar of incense, and then those two red curtains are the separation between the holy place where those things are and the most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat right on top of it. And there were two more cherubim on either side of that. Now, where else in the scriptures do you see cherubim when you're reading through? If you pay attention to some of the finer details, when Adam and Eve sin against God and are cast out of the garden, he puts two cherubim with flashing swords to block their entrance back into the garden. They need to be in the garden, they want to be in the garden, and they can't. 
Because they've disobeyed God, they've become subject to evil and death and sin, and they've been cast out of his presence. And God has been um, in his rescue mission all along, getting closer and closer to the people, but a holy God coming into the midst of a sinful people is a recipe for disaster. And so he has provided a means for this that is perfectly fulfilled in Christ our high priest, which is where I'm going this morning. But what, what happened here with this is that curtain with those two cherubim on it was shut, and the people could not go in there. And God's glory in, the, in a cloud would rest in there. And the high priest could go in on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he had to do all kinds of stuff to be prepared for this. In fact, if you read in chapter 28, he even had bells on his tassels, and it says, so that you know he's still alive. You could hear him moving around like a cat almost, right? So that, I mean, this is back in chapter 28. It says, the sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. So he would go in there and he would actually sprinkle blood. We're going to be baptizing with sprinkling of water this morning. It picks up the symbol of sprinkling blood to atone for sin and being washed and forgiven. Now, the high priest could do that once a year. The other priest could go into the the holy place and change out the, the bread in there. And this all was very um, separated from the people. There were levels of holiness. There was a level of approach. There, was, there were barriers, if you will, to having a close, intimate fellowship with God. And so the first thing he provides is the tabernacle, and then the next thing is the priesthood. And that's what I want to look at um, today, the priesthood. And the, the last part of that reading about him consecrating and ordaining these priests is for the relationship that he wants to have with the people. So he says, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, aka the tabernacle, and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests, and I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. This whole thing is about having a relationship with God. The very thing we were made for, the thing we need, Frankly, the thing our hearts long for. C.S. Lewis once put it that all desire is ultimately desire for God. It's just been bent by sin. So whatever you desire most, it's ultimately a desire for God. It's just been distorted in this world. And in Christ, hopefully that's restored so that we want him more than anything else. But this is all about a relationship with God. Now, um, there is an incredible beauty in the priesthood, but also an imperfection in it. And then we see it fulfilled in Christ as our great high priest. And then we even see that the church is called a, a royal priesthood. So I'd like to look at those four things. I'd like to look at the beauty of the priesthood and then look at its imperfection and then look at how it's fulfilled in Jesus and then look at what it means for you and I as priests in this world. So let's start with the beauty of it. Back in chapter 28, the whole chapter is about the garments and if you read through that, the garments that the priest would wear match those of the tabernacle. It's got similar colors of royal reds and blues and indigos, and it's got gold thread woven through it, and it's got pomegranates that are hanging on tassels as well as those gold bells. These were picking up themes from the Garden of Eden and, and creation, and, and it's kind of a recreation that's happening here in the tabernacle. And the priest would wear an ephod, which was like a breastplate thing, and it had 12 stones on it, one for each of the tribes of Israel. So what he was doing was symbolically coming and bringing the people of God into the presence of God, 
and representing them as an, as an intermediary, uh, an intercessor. And he was bringing both his offering and then their offering and then other kinds of offerings as well. All of this was a beautiful thing. And on his turban, etched in gold, were the words, holy unto the Lord. I mean, I would be intimidated to put on such a, a headpiece that says, holy to the Lord. Like, well, ideally, right? But knowing my heart, it's a little frightening. But it was a beautiful thing. Now, in, um, the imperfection then comes out. We see that the garments are described first in chapter 28, and then the ordination of the man who's going to wear them is described next in chapter 29. And we just read the beginning of that and the end of chapter 29. It was the consecration, the ordination of Aaron and his sons. And if you remember all the way back to Exodus 3, Moses and Aaron had Levites for parents. Mom and dad were both from the tribe of Levi. The Levites would be the priestly line for, for the generations. And Aaron would be the first priest, and then his sons, and then his sons successively all the way down through. Now, um, he, they were sinful people. And so the garments are set up as this holy extension of the tabernacle. And then they had to wash Aaron, and they described a ceremonial bath he had to go through before they put the garments on him. And then when he went in there uh, in, at well, the picture's gone, that's okay. But then on the outside, before he went into that holy place, there was an offering he would make for his sins, and then he could go in and make an offering for the people's sin, and then he made an offering, which was called the burnt offering, which was kind of like God's portion of the meal, like, okay, here's the Lord's, the Lord ordered what he would like, and here it is, and it's burned up, and then there's another portion offered, and then it's offered by waving. They would wave it before the Lord, and then they would take it outside and boil it and then serve it to the priests. It was the people's part of the meal. So remember, the covenant with God was enacted with a meal. I mean, it starts with manna, bread in the wilderness. God has come to have fellowship with his people. And last week, Lenny talked about the table and the significance of that. So we've got these different offerings. But the fact that the high priest has to first offer something to atone for his own sin shows you the imperfection of the system. There's something that's not quite right there. And that he has to be ceremonially washed first before he can put the clothing on. You know, in a Navy town, we, heard, we, we know the expression, especially when there's somebody in a higher command than you that you don't respect personally, you salute, you salute the uniform not the wearer necessarily. And the same is true here. The priest's uniform was a holy extension of the tabernacle. The individual man in it was coming up short. And we know this. I mean, it's, it's just part of the problem. And this is not a perfect covenant, which is why there will be a new covenant coming after it. It's a good and beautiful thing, but it's inadequate. And furthermore, they had to keep offering these sacrifices. It's the day of atonement, and it happened every year. And there were other sacrifices that were done with more regularity. And then the priests die. Aaron died, and his sons died, and they kept dying. And so they had to keep having generations of new priests being raised up because of the problem of sin and death. Now, enter Jesus, the great high priest, the one for whom these problems don't exist. And if you jump over to the book of Hebrews and read some of what it says in Hebrews, it mentions Jesus is a priest forever the great high priest, and his priesthood was new and different. I won't take the time now to go into the difference between him being from the line of Judah, not the Levites, and in the priesthood of Melchizedek, who's a mysterious figure from the days of Abraham, but he's coming as priest and king 
and he's coming with a new covenant, not the old covenant as a Levite. But listen to what Hebrews 8 says, or sorry, 7. It says, the Lord has sworn and he and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, speaking of the Messiah. This makes Jesus, writes the writer of Hebrews, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many by number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is resurrected and alive today ruling the universe, unseen at his Father's right hand. He is alive forever. He will never die. He died once and once for all and defeated death and rose, and so he is able to keep serving as our high priest. We don't need another priest. He is the permanent final one. It goes on and it says, consequently, he's able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, meaning for us, the people. Isn't that comforting? The great high priest right now is making intercession for you. He has dealt with your sin on the cross, and he is interceding for your needs to his Father at his Father's right hand. And this is going on forever. It goes further in Hebrews. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Jesus is different. He was the only person to live without any sin, absolutely innocent, pure, perfect before the Father. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is our great high priest, the, the, the blameless, spotless lamb that was able to be sacrificed for us. And what's interesting about this is, you know, he didn't go into that. I keep pointing to the picture, but it's not there. You can put that picture back up. It's helpful to keep thinking about the tabernacle. He didn't go through that curtain and into the Holy of Holies and die right there on the mercy seat. He died outside of the city on Mount Calvary as a criminal on a cross. But the thing about Jesus is being pure, being without any sin, he didn't offer up a burnt sacrifice. He went into heaven on our behalf and there offered the sacrifice. And when he died, you know what happened. The temple curtain tore from the top to the bottom. That, the cherubim parted. The temple ripped. The, the curtain tore from top to bottom. It was heavy, like heavy wool. And it had all that ornate stuff in it. It just ripped right from the top to the bottom. Why? Because that system is no longer what we need. We have a better one that has surpassed it. This, this was good, but that was better. And it's permanent. And it dealt with the problem of sin and Satan and death. And when we do the baptism liturgy this morning, we'll hear, we renounce Satan, we re- renounce sinful desires, we renounce the brokenness of society that lead us against God. Jesus took all of that into heaven and atoned for our sin and then, and then rose and is our great high priest, even now interceding, a high priest forever. Now, God's plan was not for a perfect priesthood in the old way, so that there would be this you know, system. God's plan, ultimately, well, I mean, if I'll, I'll jump over to Jeremiah. If you, there's a couple of places in the Old Testament that are really helpful to go. One is Ezekiel 36 in the prophets. Another is Jeremiah 31, 31. Very interesting, and it's called the New Covenant is the ESV heading. 
For God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is what God is trying to do, is he's actually trying to make you and I into that kind of a priest, if you will. In the New Testament, Peter will talk about you being a royal nation, a, a holy priesthood. The, and the reformers call it the priesthood of all believers. So what, what do priests do? Well, we have confusion in our Anglican way because I am called a priest when I'm ordained. But that is a, a Middle English mess up. The Greek word for priest is hieros in Greek, and that's the Old Testament kind that offer, you know, animals and blood. But the word presbyteros, from which we get the word presbyter, was morphed into priest, but it's, it's, meant, it's better translated elder. I'm a presbyter or an elder. I'm not a priest in that sense. I don't sacrifice anything. In fact, we added the Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us part of the liturgy, and I make a point there's an option in the rubrics to break the, the priest host, it's called, the little the, or the bigger wafer. You can either break it at the words of institution when you say, on the night he died, he took and he broke, or you can break it when, he's, when you say, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. But even there, the rubrics, the little rules in the book say, you, the priest breaks the priest host, and then silence is kept, and then Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. What's so confusing is if you make a dramatic movement about it, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. It looks like I just killed something on a communion table, which is sometimes called an altar. And that's not good. That's confusing because there's been a once-for-all-time sacrifice. Christ, our Passover, is in the ongoing state of having been sacrificed for us is literally what we mean. But that doesn't, it's not poetic, right? Something happened 2,000 years ago, distinct. It happened and was done. And its effects carry forward and, frankly, backwards. But it's not being repeated over and over and over again. It's a remembrance. And there's a mystery in it. And Christ is certainly present, but he's not being sacrificed again. The reformers made great pains to make that point. And so, you know, it's better to think of the ordained people more as presbyters, although we use the word priests. I want to go to our new catechism and just conclude with a question and answer where it says, what is the work of priests? Here, it means pres presbyters, this kind of priest. It's talking about the ordained offices in the church. What is the work of priests? And I want you to look for any place that says, you know, killing an animal and sprinkling blood or burning anything. Serving Christ with their bishops, priests, or presbyters, it says, Nurture God's people through the ministry of the word and the sacrament, and they pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Notice there's no sacrifice. In fact, our liturgy says we offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and that's we do this. So in the priesthood of all believers, what Christians are meant to do is we're meant to love God, walk with him by the Spirit, have his law written on our heart, delight to do his will, and then offer back to him praise for who he is and thanksgiving for life. In, in essence, we're going back to what Adam and Eve were meant to do in the garden as the highest of the created order. They were meant to be the priests of creation and offer thanks back to God for everything. 
but that all fell apart when they disobeyed. And now in Christ, it's being restored. So what we need is the Spirit of God to come into our hearts to help us desire and then also be able to live according to his ways and become a holy people and give thanks to him and praise for who he is and worship this great high priest forever. It will never end. The ceaseless worship of the angels, archangels, and all the heavenly company of the great lamb that was slain and is resurrected. This is our Lord, and this is good news. So what do we do with it? Give thanks for who he is and what he's done for us. Never cease to worship him and praise him. And let's pray, and then I'm going to have uh, the worship team come back up. We're going to sing a song, and then the family with the, uh, for baptism is going to come forward. But let me, let me pray for us first. Lord, I'm grateful for your sacrifice. Jesus, you did what we needed, and you have opened a new way where we can go directly to your throne of grace. I thank you for this sacrifice. We worship and praise you, and we will do this forever. Help us to understand the beauty of it, the grandeur, and frankly, our need for it. Would you take our hearts and help them beat for you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.